You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. As the birds chirp, our minds turn over again and again, trying to figure out how we can awaken the people. And this week, we are joined by Polly Cleveland, who's the adjunct professor of economics at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. And Polly, you've been in Australia to give the Walsh Bequest Lecture at Macquarie University in Sydney and kindly come down and spent a few days with us in the Prosper offices where we're broadcasting from now. So Polly, uh, how about you start off with the hypothesis of your speech at Macquarie University? Thank you for the invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here and I've especially enjoyed the wildlife uh, like the kangaroos hopping through your yard. Yes, we're very lucky up at Drummond. I've long been interested in the origins of inequality. And it is particularly strange that when you start with gatherer hunters, people who live entirely by foraging, they are extremely egalitarian societies. And I'm talking about uh, in Africa, in South America, and here, at least among some of the Aboriginal tribes, especially the ones up in the up in the desert where the living is not easy, these are extremely egalitarian societies. So how did we get from you know what must have originally been very egalitarian societies to the highly unequal society that we have today, uh, my hypothesis is that this is the result of territorial behavior. Because once you get past, well, I will call them gatherer hunters but rather than hunter-gatherers because the women typically provide most of the food, and I think they deserve first credit. You know, the, the guys uh, with their bows and arrows or spears get all the all the attention and all the credit, but it's the women who do most of the work in gatherer-hunter societies. And what particular communities have you uh, researched and, and look into in great detail? Well, the one that has interested me the most are the, the Hadza, who live in the Rift Valley. They live on lake, near Lake Ayasi in Tanzania, which is the area where humans originally evolved from some proto-ancestor of both humans and chimps. And the Hadza live this very egalitarian life, again, where the women provide most of the food and almost all the child care. And the guys really do not much at all. The guys like to hunt. The guys go out and they're looking for big game, you know, a baboon, an antelope, something like that. And if once in a while, maybe once a month, if that, one of them nails such a big animal, it's brought home in triumph, it's divided up among all the members of the group, and the guy who got it 
becomes renowned as a great hunter. But in terms of his provision of food to his family, the the amount is really negligible. So the women take care of pretty much everything. And the guys, the, you know, the women work all day digging out roots and uh, tubers and processing nuts and berries. And the guys sit around and chat when they're not out looking for big game. I know that you revealed... Uh, uh the Western influence again uh, stepping into uh, some of these tribal ways where uh, an anthropologist uh, tried to bribe some of uh, the male folk to change their ways. Well, this was a, this was a woman anthropologist. Uh, she bri- bribed the guys to bring home small game, that is birds and other little stuff, which proved that they were perfectly capable of hunting small game if bribed. But uh, they, they hunt for prestige. It's uh, called show-off hunting. Well, do we live in a world of show-off economics? Uh, Adam Smith made the line of uh, you know, self-interest, uh, delivering the greater good for the market type statement as the mechanics next door uh, add some uh, well-needed sound effects to uh, <laughs> this horrific uh, uh, change in the way people related to each other in, uh, in looking after each other first and foremost. But uh, that's been turned on its head as uh, any renegade listener uh, will know by now uh, that we urgently need to change the economic foundations upon which we uh, engage with this earth. So... Uh, What's your take on that transition? Well, the next step up from a gatherer-hunter are, well, sometimes they're called horticulturalists. They, they are groups of people who maintain a, and defend a specific territory in which they are fairly settled and they may engage in some limited farming or aquaculture. I recently read a book by an Australian guy named Bruce Pascoe talking about some of the uh, tribes of Australian Aborigines who were considerably more settled and sophisticated than you know pure gatherer hunters they built very sophisticated uh, water uh, channels and pools for raising eels or fish they farmed uh, yam daisies and some grains, and some of them even lived in stone houses or stone-walled houses. So some of them had a, you know, a much more advanced and sophisticated society. And these, of course, were the people occupying the better lands and the first to be wiped out by the incoming British. So a lot of the historically British or Australians have been very dismissive of the Aborigines because the only ones who are left in their traditional lifestyle are the gatherer hunters up in the desert areas. But nonetheless, these people, the settled people around uh, Lake Conda, for instance, had a, you know, a fairly sophisticated society, and, and they lived in groups which were not perfectly equal. They had hereditary chieftains. Uh, they had wars with their neighbors. So they were sort of the, the next step up, and they were living in what uh, Nobel Prize laureate uh, 
Eleanor Ostrom called a, a common pool resource society, which is a shared, a shared resource that is defended and managed in a you know, somewhat egalitarian fashion, not perfectly, but for instance, the, the fishing works at Borobor, I've forgotten what they're called, in New South Wales were different sections of them were operated by different clans and they had sort of sort of sharing arrangements for these fishing works. Not perfectly egalitarian, but still roughly, roughly egalitarian. And then you go from that to the truly serious agricultural societies, uh, in particular the great uh, river societies of the irrigation societies of Mesopotamia or Egypt or uh, on, on the great rivers in China. And there you now you have extremely unequal societies operated by you know kings or other forms of rulers, lots of slave labor to operate the irrigation systems. And, and now you're up to a highly unequal society. High, and, you know, my argument is that this is, you have a rich society, very territorial. You have to have a warrior class. And uh, it's a society that generates a lot of rent. You've got a, a, a nice, successful irrigation system. It generates a lot of rent. And you have a ruling elite that's capturing that rent and also defending the society from aggressive neighbors. I mean, that's in the Middle East, which is an area that I've studied. That's when you start getting uh, stone walls around cities. Well, obviously, uh, they're defending themselves against the neighbors. And you're talking about the ancient Near East. I'm talking about the ancient Near East. That was an area that I studied. I studied uh, dead languages at one point, you know, ancient Akkadian on on the clay tablets. But... I mean, there was just constant wars going on, armies crisscrossing around, uh, attacking each other's cities. And these were societies based, uh, you know, very wealthy, based on successful uh, irrigation systems. And that lifting the productivity of the land with that water and from that uh, being able to look after their community uh, more effectively... Uh, neighbouring tribes seeing that and wanting uh, some of the share of the action coming in and and fighting for it and uh, there not being an effective way to share that uh, knowledge quickly like we can these days on the internet. I don't know, maybe I'm drawing a long bow there in in terms of evolution, but uh, yeah, that, that transition though from us looking after each other and... Uh, Living on marginal lands where survival is really tough, it always does bring the community closer together, doesn't it? It brings the community closer together, and there isn't a lot of rent to fight over. When you go to your next stage up, the common pool resource societies, like the ancient societies, well, they weren't that ancient in in Australia before the British wiped them out. Not that ancient, forty to 60,000 years old. Well, well, they've sixty. They have been Aborigines in Australia. Now the latest number is uh, about sixty-five thousand years. But I'm talking about the societies that were functioning nicely until the British arrived. 
mm. uh, you know, common pool resource societies, and they're still operating like in the in the Torres Strait area. You know, they're not they're not equal, but they're not extremely unequal because my hypothesis is that that there's not enough rent there uh, to to support an extremely hierarchical society. And again, this is just my hypothesis, but the reason you don't find ancient cities with walls in Australia was that Australia is a very dry, resource-poor country, and there were never enough density of resources to make the leap to societies like the the the, the great river societies of the Middle East, or for that matter, uh, you know, the, the, the Aztecs or the Incas in South America, where, again, it was possible to get enough good agricultural production to provide a lot of rent, to provide something worth fighting over. And once you have something worth really, really seriously worth fighting over, and you have armies running in different directions, you know, then you wind up with the much more extreme inequality. The real question, I mean, this has been the, the story through most of human uh, civilized history. The real miracle is the Industrial Revolution in England that Adam Smith witnessed that wound up in Great Britain with a, a very unequal but still relatively more equal and civilized society than had been there before. Listeners, you're on The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, and this week we're with Polly Cleveland. She's from Columbia University where she's the adjunct professor in public affairs, international and public affairs. School of International and Public Affairs. There we go. So uh, you're mentioning there... Uh, Europe and the Industrial Revolution, you're saying that it, it became fairer once the Industrial Revolution kicked in. Yeah, uh, and it's... That's people... a new take. I always thought that uh, kids, you know, young as seven or eight were uh, enslaved in all sorts of giant factories oh, and sure. smokestacks and fires and poverty and Melthus coming along. Well, Malthus was, was trying to justify inequality now, Adam Smith observed that with the Industrial Revolution, actually, the working men were actually doing better. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was still you know, an enormous class difference. One of the things that ple- greatly pleased Adam Smith, I mean, Adam Smith was a very left-wing guy in his own way. Uh, he was. You do a word search of his book, and he talks about uh, monopoly, he talks about ground rent. He mentions them some 180, 200 times, but mm. uh, all we hear about is the invisible hand and uh, the individual uh, preferences of man driving the market uh, more efficiently. Well, that's, uh, some of that is, is taken out of context too, but Adam Smith was no fan of the landed nobility, even though he was dependent on them. I mean, he, he tutored the young duke of, I'm not sure how to, Buckley, Buckley, or something like that. Uh, so he was dependent on the landed aristocracy, but he made some pretty negative remarks about them. And what pleased him was that the growing industrialists were tempting the aristocracy to spend their money and to get into debt 
and, and to sort of break up their power. And of course, what was happening, industrialists and, and merchants were making a lot of money, and then they were marrying off their daughters to, to nobility to get the titles. In any case, Adam Smith observed this going on, and, and, and he observed the nobility spending themselves into bankruptcy, and he thought this was, was, was neat. <laughs> it wasn't the term he used. But you know, Adam Smith had traveled to France, where he'd met the physiocrats, who were all in favor of the, the unique tax, which was the tax on land, because the, the physiocrats believed that all wealth came from land. And that was the only thing that should be taxed. Yes, they certainly did. And it's something that uh, I always bring up with French people, whether they've known about the physiocrats. And, uh, yeah, there's some work to be done there, isn't there? In yeah. these, uh, were they court, court advisors, weren't they, in the royal court? Well, actually, Canet uh, was a physician to the king believe it or not. And he had this sort of macro theory of uh, he had he had a little map showing how uh, sort of how how well trickled down. I mean, he un he understood, you know, how activity in one branch was reflected in activity in another branch. It was I'm trying to remember the the right term for it. The, the ladies he had this chart with with zig, zigzags, so it was known as lay zigzag of of how wealth trickled down from one level to another. And it was one of the first attempts at at creating a form of national account. Yeah, it was an yeah. effort at, at national accounting. Mm. And then there was Turgot, uh, who again tried to as the I guess he was the minister of finance or something. I've forgotten exactly what he was, but. Uh, he tried to persuade Louis the Fourteenth, I think it was, uh, to to tax the tax the nobility and 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 stop imposing all of these destructive taxes on 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 the poor and on the on the labor, the corvée system. I, don't quote me on this. I'd have to look up to see exactly what he advocated. But he was also a believer in land taxes. Mm. And. Their, their big uh, point was recognising that those who owned the best agricultural land could grow the most food, and from that uh, they enjoyed this bounty, which is what we economists call uh, economic rents, yeah. and uh, that could be taxed away naturally without changing their behaviour. Yeah, they, 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 they recognised that. and of course, I mean, the French had a system where uh, the the high nobility and the church did not pay any taxes on their land, so 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 all taxes were on the lower orders of society, and then there were taxes along the roads as you moved from one district to another, and then there was the corvée in which the nobility or the government could simply require workers to go and work on building the roads. Mm, corvée was a taxing kind. A it was a tax kind. in kind, yeah. You had to work to pay pay your dues for the government. Right. Yeah, so um, as... Uh, and the we British were just more, were not nearly as, well, backwards or unequal and regressive as the French. 
And so as we speed forward to today, we've got uh, these global cities with record immigration levels coming in, these booming land prices going through the roof. And uh, it seems this global trend to cut company taxes is uh, the key to reducing inequality and generating more economic growth. Now, why do you think economic growth is, is seen as the, the saviour for everything, including inequality? Well, I think it's seen as, a, as the saviour because as long as the pie is growing, then the rich don't have to give anything up. Oh, that's a nice one. And in a sense, there's a, an element of hope that we all have that if the economy's growing, we'll do better. But if you actually... We won't have to, we won't have to make any sacrifices. Uh, I mean, economic growth in some areas has been a very good thing, uh, but sometimes economic growth has proceeded at the expense of the environment. And as John Stuart Mill pointed out, at some point... It has to stop, and the question is, I mean, George, you know, talked about Spaceship Earth and and, and foreseeing growth going on indefinitely, but you know, we're 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 hitting limits, and the question is, can we can we retrench without it's all coming at the expense of the poor? Can we share the retrenchment? And it it doesn't have to be bad. I mean, George is talking about a world in which People aren't working desperately because of poverty yawning below them in which a lot of people can do the work that, that, that they enjoy rather than having to struggle and fight each other for scraps. Mm. I mean, can we have a, a work where more people can enjoy learning and enjoy art and enjoy music? But it's hard when you've got, you really require two income earners to pay a mortgage that one one income earner could pay off uh, in three or four years uh, worth a full time income, just twenty or thirty years ago that was the the general equation, and now in Australia it's thirteen times uh, two incomes to pay off a mortgage, and and still you're struggling. So the inequality question continues, and uh, it's it's this forgotten issue of of uh, taxing the land if you like taxing away this natural bounty of those who own location location and here we are tonight uh, about to launch the trickle up economics report uh, there we go we're saying uh, loud and clear that uh, if we did tax land uh, wealth would trickle upwards slowly from those of us on the bottom levels uh, becoming more prosperous and uh, society could grow in that manner it's not just a question of collecting the rent. It's a question of collecting it efficiently, that is, without a lot of deadweight loss along the way, and also of spending it efficiently or appropriately and fairly. A lot of the rent in the United States gets spent on the military, mm. which is a total waste and drain on the economy. So it collect the rent and use it for public works that pass a benefit cost test, that is not bridges to nowhere, spend it on services to people, health, education, pensions, uh, other services, even a basic income grant is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these tax expenditures that keep mounting up around the world, that's another one. 
So that's a good point of clarification that uh, it's not just about raising revenue, but it's also about removing these subtle subsidies. Uh, well, maybe they're not so subtle anymore. We're, many in the progressive movement have cottoned on to just how many million and billions of dollars uh, that uh, these uh, patents lock up in value and what sort of protection that provides uh, these big farmer uh, type companies. Well, it's not just big pharma. What has unfortunately happened in the U.S. and has been copied around the world is this uh, Chicago University notion of the benign monopoly. You know, as long as a monopoly doesn't raise consumer prices drastically, or at least not at first, monopolies are fine. We used to have serious antitrust regulation in the U.S., but that sort of gradually went out the window, helped along by Bill Clinton. Uh, so, I mean, it's both Democrats and Republicans who have gone along with the notion of benign monopoly. And the banks have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and so has everybody else. And uh, now we've got the monopolies like, like Google and Amazon and Facebook, and we're beginning to see how much damage they can do. And you know, all of a sudden people are waking up to the damage of monopoly and that's, uh, and monopsony, that is a single, a single buyer. Uh, if you have uh, a burger chain, they manage to depress the wages. They act sort of in quiet concert to depress the wages of their, of their workers. So this is, this is all you know, gnawing away at the wages and benefits of ordinary people. They certainly are. And, uh, yeah, it's great to see this Open Markets Institute in America, listeners. Uh, check them out because they're doing lots of good work. And, yes. uh, Polly, you brought them to my attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a guy named Barry Lynn and his other people. And uh, he wrote a book God, almost 10 years ago called Cornered, the New... The New Monopoly Capital and the Economics of Destruction. And what he was pointing out was how rapidly the, especially the multinational economy has become monopolized. I mean, everywhere you look, there's only a few companies. And one of my favorite examples is the eyeglass industry which is almost totally controlled worldwide by an Italian company called Luxottica. And that's from the making the lenses, the making the frames, the, the eyeglass shops, uh, sort of up and down around the world is mostly controlled by Luxottica. And you have two or three uh, meat companies, two or three beer companies. And every time you get an industry monopolized, you get less, less choice, higher prices, less innovation. Uh, my husband had a student, a biochemistry student, who went to work for DuPont. DuPont at one point had a, a sort of a blue sky research lab. Well, you know, DuPont, like a big chemical company, it, it cut out the research. It decided who needs this, you know, uh, we will buy up patents or patents, as you folks call them, and, and just sit on them. Mm. You know, why bother to spend, that's what big companies don't do anymore. They don't do uh, research. Why bother? They're getting plenty of, plenty of income. There's no competition. Why, why bother to do new research? Well, 
a, a positive twist on this, Polly Cleveland? Uh, do you see this new economics movement, uh, all the online fervor for reform? Are we getting anywhere? Well, there's certainly, especially with the, the ecological economics, there's a lot of people, a lot more people now who appreciate Henry George and land value taxation and the fact that we live in a commons to which we should all have a right. So uh, there's Peter Peter Barnes and the you know the the whole commons movement. Mm. Uh, so there you know there's a, there's a lot going on and there's some really good people writing in England, uh, which is exciting. There's the the new book on rethinking the economics of land and housing. It's getting a mention nearly every week on this show. Uh, yeah, well, I wrote a review of it, and it's a it's a terrific book with an unmemorable name. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it certainly made waves in the UK. So, Polly Cleveland, uh, thanks so much for uh, checking in with us here in Melbourne on The Renegade Economist. And uh, listeners, you'll be able to find uh, links to her work, including a great article on Monopoly and Patents and Open Markets Institute uh, in our upcoming edition of Progress magazine. All right, thanks again, Polly. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been wonderful fun to be here. Thanks a million for listening. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au.